Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. I'm back with another episode of the Forest Educator with Johnny Walker. Tell us a little about your program and whatever's going on. (laughs) I'm excited to hear you. Yes. Well, thank you for having me on. So my name is Johnny. I'm a teacher, so I'm a primary school teacher. I was born in Yorkshire, so in the north of England, and now all of my work is based in East London. So I've been a primary school teacher for 12 years, and over that time, I specialised more and more and found myself working initially as an assistant director of a teaching school. So in the UK, we have this like kind of expertise sharing approach where one school might be designated as a local leader and their role is to bring other schools together. And right. initially that was, yeah, initially that was meant to be for um, like teacher development, but we saw that there was a great potential for bringing the students together as well. And one of the things that that led to was a very experimental poetry retreat. So where we would take children from five or six different schools in East London, um, and we would hire out a youth hostel in the New Forest, which is this like beautiful ancient woodland on the south coast of England. We would have this residential visit where we bring those students together and give them a writing opportunity. And really it was from first doing that, maybe about, what would it be, maybe seven years ago now, it felt like a kind of pivotal moment in recognizing the kind of teacher that I wanted to be, but also the huge potential for using the outdoor spaces that we have here in in a variety of different ways. Um, So I'm still very much on the journey and enjoying all of these different ways that we can use forests, especially, you know, outdoor spaces and the variety of natural landscapes. But there's something about a forest. I know I don't need to tell you this, but yeah, there's something very appealing. And for the age of the kids that I work with, sort of usually nine, 10, 11 years old, they manage to harness something of the the wilderness of it and maybe that the wildness in themselves at that age as well. It Somehow it just seems very compatible to, to do yeah. this kind of creative education work with kids that age in this kind of place. Absolutely. Yeah. So you're, you take them into the woods, you go, you stay at a hostel and then you're you're going into the new forest. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, those children really are living in that whole mythological landscape inside their head anyway, right? They're playing video games. They're watching TV shows that have, you know, larger than life characters. And so all of a sudden you're there in the, really there in the wilderness and in, na- in nature immersed in that. And, and then what do you do, you know, after you do that, like you go, you go for hikes, you go exploring. That's right. Yeah. So it's, it's a poetry retreat. So I always work with the same guy. So there's a a poet in education whose name is Adissa. If anyone wanted to search him, A-D-I-S-A. And he and I worked together right from the very beginning to bring this idea of a project together. Um, So the children have their own notepads and so do the adults. So it's very democratic in the way that it works. We're all on the same level. We're all there for the same purpose, really, which is to have good conversation, to write and to explore the forest and to use it increasingly to use it to explore ourselves as well. Right. Um, so, yeah, over the course of the four days, we do lots of detours out into the different landscapes that are around us. So in some parts, it's very dense, ancient woodland. In other parts, we're climbing hills. Um, it's an especially beautiful part of England. Like a lot of England is not very nice, but this part is. 
So there's like wild horses there. And um, yeah, the, the children do different poetry workshops with us and use that to generate their own ideas. But increasingly what we found is that given the children simply the time to soak up what's around them and to express that in their own way is just as conducive of their creative writing too. So some of the best poetry that they've had has not come about through the moments where we are like, you know, come sit on the fallen log, join us in this innovation. It's more right. as they're leaving that and they're walking on, they'll be thinking, I just heard my friend say something very weird. I'm going to steal that, put it in my notepad and turn that into the poem. Um, right. So yeah, it all leads towards creative writing. And for these children as well, um, it's not to typecast, but it, it is generally the case that they don't have much exposure to nature at all. Most of the kids that we work with haven't spent much time outside of East London. And whilst that has got its own appeals, and whilst there is some beautiful woodland around us, the opportunity to get out of London, to get into a completely different sort of place, is just as much the appeal as the destination itself. You know, it's the difference as well as the destination. Right, exactly. I mean, this is this is so funny because the things that you're experiencing right now, you know, and that you're creating for these children, it's literally forest education. Like it's, <laughs> it's like the perfect, you know, description, everything you would imagine if it was like forest education to come in that you're basically saying, all right, well, yeah, we could do the poetry in a classroom, you know, and just kind of be there as all the other subjects, but now we're going out. And I've often thought that, that children, you know, need experiences in order to then, you know, write or whatever, because otherwise people can be really technically excellent writers with a lot of, of talent, but if they don't have experiences that are real and diverse, their writing kind of will seem a little stilted or a little bit like it won't be informed by that magical creative flow that is kind of that synthesis of something that where you go, oh my gosh, wow, that that hits in a different way, right? Yeah. And, you know, that's been the interesting thing that we've found is that there is definitely a lot of really good writing that comes out from that context. So, you know, we may have done an activity, for example, where we like a few years ago, we had really, really intense thunderstorms. And within the new forest, it completely changed the landscape of the places that we went to. And it was really, really ancient trees. So, you know, once they'd been uprooted, it created these vast, like, temple-like entrances into the root systems, which were upturned. And yeah. we had the opportunity to use that and to tell poem, you know, tell stories and things around it. So some of the children, the experience of, you know, climbing into the root system of a fallen tree, that's directly what they chose to write about. But what was really fascinating was, you know, our impression for myself and for the poet Adissa, you know, we thought that all we would need to do is take them to a really beautiful, natural place. And then the raw beauty of nature would inspire the poetry out of them. But we found that while some there was an extent to which that happened with a lot of them, um, it was just the opportunity to be out of London. So as soon as they were in the forest, it felt like they were far removed enough from their own regular life experiences that they could look back at their regular London lives right. and express about that, which was, I think, what we underestimated. You know, like in the first instance, we called it a poetry retreat because it sounded cool. And we were surprised when it actually functioned as one, where the children took it as an opportunity to, to pause reality and be like, you know what, I'm looking at these acorns, but what I'm thinking about is I don't get enough freedom when I'm at home. 
I'm going to write about how when I'm at home, I don't get to do as much as I'm doing right now. So it kind of created yeah. that really interesting reflective space so that the writing that did come from the children was really varied, some natural and some just grounded in their own regular kind of city experience too. So it was good learning for us. You know, we, we constantly are changing what we're doing, largely based on recognizing how it is that the children experience it. And yeah, it's, right. it's fascinating. That's great. You know, what's interesting about what you said about the, the trees being uprooted is that I, re, I have that same feeling like we when we would take children on a, you know, maybe going out to gather something to make, you know, fire or some, whatever, whatever we were going on a hike for. And if they saw a tree that had fallen, it was like a magnet. Like they just all were like drawn to it immediately. They wanted to climb on it. They wanted to hang on it. They wanted to see what was underneath. Like it was a magical thing to go, hey, I wonder what's under a tree. And all of a sudden they're like digging around in there and there's clumps of dirt falling down. And then they get up on top of the tree if it had fallen for a few months or whatever. And there would be like animal droppings on the top, you know, where foxes would go to the bathroom, where they, you know, up where they mm. could see everything. You know, they could relate. It seems like they, re they can relate to the fact that there's this big giant and it just fell. Or maybe it's a smaller tree, but it's, it fell and it's like going to feed the forest in a different way but it's also broken and like there's just these all these different ways that we could kind of that they're unconsciously identifying with this experience you know right so so it's you know when you just see like a beautiful landscape or a beautiful vista mm. it's it's hard for that to relate if you don't feel be beautiful inside it's hard to relate to that other than to go oh that's really pretty let me take a picture it's not yeah. doesn't impact you but then when you see like you come around the corner and you go oh here's a bird that got attacked by another bird and it's laying here and it's just like, ooh, you know, it hits you in a different way, I guess. So yeah, those examples are great too. And it's remarkable to see like where children find their own sense of majesty in nature. Like on one of these retreats, most recently we take them in the summer, which is a very different vibe. I personally, I feel like I'm a very autumnal person. Like I'm, I'm happiest when I'm wearing like, you know, a beanie hat and a scarf and yeah. drag begrudging children through the cold and that's yeah. how i like things i love the fall yeah it's great and like on one of those times obviously the you know for us the sunset was maybe about 4 p.m and it, you know even just to to be in a place where they've got such an open sky you know as we were crossing the heath and things we never get to see that and it's the same really for you know for us as the adults and yeah that was on one of those visits one of the children was just hypnotized by it and he wasn't a child who had stood out as being particularly taken by nature or certainly not poetry. I think he actively didn't like poetry, um, but he was just staring at the sky and the moon had, the moon was there alongside the sun. The colors had all gone strange. And he just was like repeating this phrase voodoo moon, like almost like a chant, like something about this phrase in his mouth. He was enjoying saying it. And he just kept yeah. talking voodoo moon, voodoo moon. And there's these, examples of these moments where we, we get to see the children in very mundane and non-magical contexts and it's remarkable how easily they slip into that like you mentioned earlier like magical thinking yeah they so easily slip into fantasy and, and mythology and giving them the space to do that is remarkable and you know being honest it was not what we expected the whole thing to be in the first instance we thought it was primarily an academic thing. We're like, how nice that we get to take these children to go and think about poems for four days. They'll come back skillful writers. And, you know, and there was definitely improvement in that. But the, the biggest gains were in terms of their 
um, well, you know, their social, their, their social learning, they're learning with each other, but also their relationships with themselves. It was about confidence and yeah, the, the kind of pastoral side of things was by far the most pronounced change. And that's what we've tried to lean upon increasingly. That's, you know, where the impact is for them. You don't realize you need it. Right, right. You don't realize it until it's gone, right? So when you don't have that inner connection, that I think that that in some ways, it feels like to me, I don't, I can't say for sure. I'm sure there's been studies maybe or that are being done or have been done where they talk about the anxiety that children feel or that we feel as adults in today's world where where you don't feel quite you just feel like something's missing and you don't feel that connection you're lonely all these things kind of get rolled into say anxiety and by going out in nature with a group of your peers and friends and share experiences it's like you're reweaving those those bonds and and then when they come back they're just different even though they're not camping with everyone or going on hikes every day that those things still hold into our foundation you know so it's it's pretty nice to see. So, yeah, that's amazing. What? I, how has your program evolved? I should say, like, mm-hmm. is it evolved a little bit from you kind of mentioned it a little bit already? But, um, you know, did you you made some changes, or you know, you thought it was going to be this, and then it turned out to be something else? Anything that you can say towards that? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I think in large part it's been about where we place the freedom. Yeah. You know, there's like as teachers, you're always playing that kind of intricate juggling game of constraint and freedom. And, you know, we find that if, if the children had complete freedom, especially because they're in a very unfamiliar setting, all that they experience is the, the fear, like the fear of being in an unknown place. Mm. All those stories that they hear about the forest as a place where like, you know, a witch is going to jump out and savage them and things. All of those things come to the forefront. So it's looking at how we frame the activities that give the children a genuine freedom to roam and to explore, um, but not so much freedom that they experience it as panic or that they experience it as kind of alien, like an alienating lack of support. So over time, I think the two of us, in terms of how we put trust in the children, we've seen that where we've relaxed things more, we've always been rewarded with you know, the children rise to it every single time. Yeah. So certain teacherly habits that you have when you're in, you know, even if you're on a, a school visit elsewhere, it's the most paranoid time of your life. You're kind of like constantly scanning, like, have I lost one of the seven children who are with me? Did they did they get on the train? Right. Are we all, are they being, you know, are they offending people by being too noisy? Are they doing weirdness? There's a kind of like hypervigilance normally on a residential trip. Um, and what we've seen is, you know, for, for myself and Adissa as the ones leading it, if we relax ourselves and put the trust in the children, they always do better. Um, yeah. they, they prefer it, they still listen, and they they benefit from being trusted. And we've seen that not just in terms of like, you know, behavior and just looking after them and care and things, but we see it in their writing too. So whereas in the first few iterations of the project, we had a very tightly defined schedule and be like, around you know around 210 we need to be at the top of this hill so that i can shout this sonnet at them <laughs> all of that sort of stuff is really really relaxed yeah. so you know if if we're doing one particular activity and they are really enjoying it you like you know if something about the way the light has hit the landscape means they want to stay and sketch then we will do that and 
again, interestingly, like those changes that we've had on the retreat, you know, when we do this, we've got really good ratios with adults too. So we have, you know, every year, five different schools take part. So the children don't know each other when they arrive. Oh, wow. No, that's good. Um, and nor do the teachers. So there's one adult from each school as well. Now for these teachers, you know, they are very much in the midst of all the challenges of being a teacher at these times, you know, they are burdened with paperwork, um, just the expectations of being the front line of social care in a very unequal, unjust society. So the teachers are burdened with all of this experience. And increasingly, we find that as Adissa and I have tried to kind of model a different way of teaching where we can open things up more, it contradicts the way that things happen, even when they are in very good schools, there's that kind of pervasive you know, nationwide sense of an education system that weighs down on them. Um, so for the teachers themselves, that's possibly been where the greatest difference has been made because it, it can kind of restore the teachers when they're feeling quite ground down, but it, it hopefully gives them when they take part, the same kind of thing that we had when we first began where, you know, you, you draw strength from it and connect to a different side of what it means to be a teacher so that you don't feel like you're just, you know, a, a paperwork peddler. Yes. But instead, you, there's there's something deeper to it. And certainly whilst we're in the forest, it feels sometimes like a spiritual thing um, as well. Like, you know, the kind of archetype of the teacher. You yes. feel closer to it when you're out in nature. Yeah. Now, it's nice because when you're in the forest, you the, the students will look up to you because you are an anchor for them of safety. And they instinctively know, like, if something happens in the woods, you're the strong person that has the ability like they know they can't really do much for themselves in some ways right mm. when you're in a classroom you're you're within the system and so at least in like america i know that my brother's a teacher and he tells me that yeah the kids can say anything and it's not it's not going to blow back on them and we kind of just have to deal with it or whatever and you're part of a system so you're not necessarily there to protect them but more to tell them what to do and mm. you know kind of have control or whatever and so I, I noticed that a lot in when in my wilderness programs is that as soon as we, if the group wasn't really listening to us and we're like sitting around the campfire, I would just go, hey, everyone, you know, let's go. We're going on a little walk outside of camp. As soon as we get outside of camp and I go through a couple of bushes, they don't know where we are. They're like, where yeah. are we? And so at that point, everything I say, they're going to listen to very carefully because yeah. they're just like, we have no idea, even though they're a hundred yards away. Mm. It's It's been really interesting just to take them and I, I would all deliberately take them sometimes through places where they'd get a little bit scratched up or they'd have to duck underneath trees and where they're not just like hiking on a wide trail. And then that seemed to just change their perspective. Like they're aware of their body. They're aware of how they're moving. They're aware of how they're seeing things in a different way. And then everything, all of a sudden you get to the, you know, 10 minutes later, they're just in a completely different headspace. Whereas before they were just yelling and arguing about Harry Potter or something. So and how and does then, that feel for you then you know like for you as the person who you know like we talk very often about like the magical experience for the child you know but for you as a, a wilderness educator to be able to kind of move them into those different spaces like how does that feel for you right well you, what's interesting about it is that I always I always feel like when I'm with a group of children I always feel like I'm this is probably what you're doing too, is that I feel like I have a, I have kind of a recipe. I ha I know what I'm trying to make. Like I, if I'm thinking of like, I'm going to make a chocolate chip cookie. 
And so I know I need certain ingredients to make that happen. And so each activity I do has to add something to the recipe to make the whole thing work. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. some of it is like self-esteem, you know, so if we do like fire building and they learn how to make fire, they feel good about themselves. Some of it is like listening and getting into a really calm place. And some of it is about working as a team. And so I kind of like try to give them this whole palette of different colors or, you know, ingredients. And then, and then at the, you know, and, and it's in the middle of it, it's kind of a, you know, it's like a mixing bowl. You don't know what's happening the, You know, the kids are just going through and going, I don't know. He taught me how to do fire and it worked. So I guess I'll listen to him on this tree thing or whatever we're doing. And then all of a sudden at the, you know, midway point, they're pulling us at that point, me and my staff were exhausted, mm. but they're pulling us now. And they're going like, when can we go down to the stream and, you know, catch crayfish or when can we do? And so all of a sudden we're like, yeah, that'll be fun. Let's go. Even though we're exhausted. Uh, and then, and then their experience kind of uh, the magic of it kind of encompasses all of us. But, but there's a moment in the beginning where you're just like, okay, how do I get this ball, this huge boulder rolling? And mm. how do I get them to see that they're sitting in this like incredible, you know, uh, like mythical universe that is unlike another, I mean, it's a different planet in a way from where they're from. And how do I get them to see not only that it's different, but actually something that is just mind-blowingly wondrous, you know, yeah. and it's just like, part of me is like, oh gosh, you know, <laughs> this yeah. is so much work. But, but then all of a sudden there'll be a, a, a bunch of coyotes or uh, an owl will hoot right over my head. And everyone will suddenly go, oh, listen to that. That's so cool. And I'm like, oh, nature, thank you. You did it again. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's like the the kind of invasion of the unexpected yes. is one of the most beautiful things with this. Because it's so much of education is about controlling for things so much that nothing unexpected can happen. And that's heralded as the mark of a good system is no interruptions. But like the interruptions are where the learning often is. Yes. As you say, like that kind of emotional balancing as well like this is one of the most fantastic things that we see is the, the odd way in which you know a, a writing activity or a poetry activity somehow feels like the way that the activity itself is framed mirrors the way that the children are experiencing the walk itself so like on one of the first visits that we did i really naively when i was doing my risk assessments and things i'd gone there a few months a few weeks before um and it looked like a completely different place so on my little form of like how i was going to get into different parts of the woodland i'd written like you know walk between the red leaves and then by the time i was there there were no red leaves so as we were <laughs> missed you know we learn from these things exactly but, um, it's true <laughs> as we'd gone in i just it, it looked so different to what i'd remembered and i lost my bearings and it wasn't like we were in the most dense, deep part of the forest, but because we were going in, you know, in fall, it was dark. It was suddenly very, very dark in there. And I experienced, you know, like thinking about those moments as a teacher where you know it's like a, a very decisive moment where you have to be on your best form. I don't think I was. Like the children were reading me. They were like, are we okay? I was like, yeah, no, everything's fine. And they're like, they're like you sound like you're lost. I was like, no, no, it's fine. And they were kind of going with it, but then a few of them were like, we, you know, we don't like it. And I could feel them like grabbing at my sleeves and their dim torches were like fading in the... Yeah. So it was one of those moments where the, the unexpectedness could have been a detour into fear, but 
And again, I think I'd probably need to throw this one over to Adissa because it definitely feels like it was one of his ideas. But recognizing that some of the children were starting to panic, he rather than being afraid of that fear that was brewing, he was like, no, this fear, fear belongs here as much as anything else. Let's work with this. So we stopped everybody. We stood in a circle, you know, around the trees. And we just embraced the fact that it was so dark that we couldn't see each other. We're saying, how rare is it that we would get to experience this? And we turned that moment where my inability to navigate turned into one of the richest learning moments of the visit. And like with his creative input, especially, it meant that we could open up in a very safe way a talk about fear and about conquering fear. Yeah. And, you know, this is, this is the way that the retreat has developed as well as sometimes these spontaneous activities that just come out through, you know, my own and his own professional experience of kind of riding the wave and thinking on the spot, they become the core components then. So the year after we were like, we need to find something that is going to allow them to have that same depth of conversation about conquering fear, because that became really crucial to the success of it last time. And again, it's, it's a, a privilege to be able to work in that sort of way. And right. it's sadly a freedom that a lot of educators lack. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about it when, uh, when children give you and parents and, a school or whatever, when they give you your that trust, when they say, we trust you to, you know, that the children aren't really in danger, they might feel that way, but we we want you to do what is, you know, we believe in what you're doing enough to say, this is a good risk, just like parents do every day. They go, hey, let's go climb trees or let's go ride our bicycles or whatever. And those are risks that, mm. and, and so, you know, it's nice to be able to have that because it is the opposite, exactly what you said most schools want to control everything. And I, I, when I was early in my after-school program career, I would go into a school. And I, I was in like 18 local schools. We would go in and do a nature program for two hours. And one time we went out and we had brought all these like spears. They're just, I don't know, maybe five feet long, sharp points, not real sharp, but they're just wooden sticks really. Mm. And we said, oh, we're going to we're going to learn how to throw spears. And and so I was walking through the hallways with this bundle of, of spears and I saw I saw a superintendent coming the other way and he was you know wearing a tie, white shirt, you know, very official and everything. And he kind of saw me and I passed him and I kind of nodded or waved to him and then went to the classroom. And then he came over, you know, he turned around and followed me and he went, hey, what are you guys doing? And I said, oh, we're with the after school program. We explained it. And then he's like, well, I'm not sure if I feel comfortable with this. This seems like it could be dangerous. And I go, I said to him, do you guys have football here? You know, like American football. Mm. And he's like, yeah. I said, do you play baseball? And he's like, yeah. He said, what do you use to hit a baseball? And he goes, well, the bat. And I go, yeah, I said, I'm pretty sure that between trying to tackle and hit each other and swinging, I said, this is going to be fine. I said, I've done it for 30 years. I said, this is going to be something that these children are always going to have. And he got on board with that to his credit, but he was, there's that moment where he was like, I could shut this down. Yeah. And, he, and then by me talking about it and helping him kind of position it in all the other activities that they allow, he said, all right, let's, let's go for it. And, uh, but it's, it's touch and go. I mean, it really, like he could easily have said no and he could bring it to the school board and they could have voted it down. There's so many things that sometimes it, you're just dealing with managed risks so much that you just go, well, does anybody care about teaching the kids? <laughs> like, are yeah. we looking at what the results are? Because 
the results are not good. So come on. Yeah. And, and, you know, risk being the, the word there, I mean, it's a disservice to children if they're not allowed to learn these risks. And sometimes that is the physical risk of hurling a spear. Right. Um, but also, you know, I, the, the risk aversion sometimes goes into the whole pedagogy as well. Like people are averse to the kind of teaching, whether that's in a forest or elsewhere, that opens up the, the kind of uncertainty that real human interaction entails. Um, you know, it's it's much harder to administrate chaos, but chaos is chaos is the natural way of things more <laughs> much more than anything else. That's right. That's right. That there's a whole thing about this idea of a of a system. I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, you know, when you think of like a for like forest schools have a certain way that they approach it, and they do, they have like very minimal you know taught activities. It's much more student led and student exploration, and it's. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting thing. I mean, I I think that that's why sports in general are so you know children come to school because they have a chance to play sports in a lot of ways mm -hmm. because sports are random. You you might get hurt, you know, kids do get hurt, but you yeah. also but you also have an opportunity to win the game and be the hero, mm -hmm. you know, or or something or stop catch the ball before it goes in the goal or whatever it is, and and you have a chance to get into the flow that flow with your teammates and. You know that's hopefully maybe at the back of your mind and you're developing that um and then but at the same time you don't like like for english you know teaching english or languages mm. sometimes you go well where's the risk there right you know like it's, it's not that much of a risk to read shakespeare or whatever but now you do the iliad you t you actually do a um a, yeah, a like yeah. live action version of mm. interpretation and all kinds of creative stuff with with uh classic <laughs> classic poetry from Greece or whatever that's that sounds really cool too yeah and, and there's a huge crossover um you know with forest education there too like I'm very fortunate that so you know the the Iliad project that I do I work with a group of schools in East London called the New Vision Trust so they uh -huh. have five different schools and every year I work with all of the children who are in year five which I think is grade four so is that like nine and ten year olds right so like the whole project developed through working with them, but now there are all of these interesting new iterations of it, one of which is, you know, a, a largely outdoor version. So I work with another school in East London called Glade Primary School, named after its own forest glade, which it happens to have, you know, it's a very urban built up area, but in the in the weird way that the history of London is one of like the growing of a city into ancient forest. There are these little tiny pockets of forest still hidden right. around. Um, yeah, with this with this school, we've been able to do the Iliad project, you know, and it's perfect for the forest. You know, those the natural forces, not only because lots of the events leading up to it in the kind of mythological tales around, you know, the interactions of the gods, um, you know, the, the way in which Agamemnon shoots the deer of Artemis in the forest and all of that. It, it could have been written for the kind of forest that happens to be on that school's grounds yeah. and seeing the difference it makes for the children. I mean, we we do a good job of imagining and, you know, we can use a very mundane, regular classroom in very creative ways, too. But there is definitely something about, you know, saying we are watching out for a vengeful goddess and then all of us having to go and cower behind real trees. It just immediately makes it more vivid and more accessible. And again, you know, we, we mentioned magical thinking and the kind of intrinsic mythological connections between forests. You know, I see it as a triangle relationship really between the forests, mythology, and also with 
children themselves. I think there's something quite mythic about the way that kids that sort of age see the world and experience things. They, they're not constrained by <laughs> their like mortal limits. You yes. know, they, they see things that no one else sees. They describe things in ways that are not always described. Um, you know, the divide between what is and is not real is not always as concrete as it is for us as adults. So to be doing something like the Iliad project, where we're taking it into a historical context, bringing mythology, children, and forests together, it feels like there's a real harmony there. And it, you know, each of those little right. points enriches the other. It's going really well. And, you know, just seeing how different schools and different children respond to that too. Like I had the good fortune of um, like being invited to run these projects. So outdoor poetry workshops and the Iliad in some schools in India this year as well. Um, and like in Chennai, we got to go to these incredible forest gardens. So it's, you know, an incredibly temperate rainforest with these gigantic bats like flying over us wow. and to be able to use that as a space to work in. You could see that doing the same workshop in a different kind of forest engenders a different kind of writing and a different kind of fantasy too. Right. Uh, so yeah, there's as many myths and lessons as there are trees. And it's, you know, I could imagine in, I, I've not got much experience at all of the US, but just seeing from a lot of the students that I teach online as well, you know, the diversity of being a kid who's grown up in the Rockies compared to a kid who's grown up in the Californian Redwoods. Mm -hmm. Their own kind of mythical imaginations are really shaped by the landscapes that they know as well. Absolutely. Well, in, in India, they have such a rich, rich, history of uh, of the sagas right the these stories of of all the god you know mm. I remember i don't remember them that well to be able to say a whole lot other than that but i just remember that they had these really long intricate tales that were amazing so that sounds like it would be it would mesh perfectly yeah absolutely and a lot of parallels between like the iliad and the mahabharat and like mm -hmm. the ramayana as well where you've got yeah forests as well you know characters right. the demons hiding in the forests like it's, it's a universal, isn't it? Like the mythical yeah. nature of the forest. And yeah, I, I do feel that that age specifically is is made for it. There's something like foresty in the mind of the world's 10-year-olds. Right. I mean, a 10-year-old, you know, every stick is a sword or a wand or a or something, right? It's, it's a spear or I something, know. even though it's a stick. And I, I know when I would work with younger children, somebody would pick up a stick and they would go, this is my my whatever it is and then everyone else would go i want a stick like that and then and then we walk like two steps and i go here's one it looks just like that and they're like yay <laughs> like we just they all would be like yay we all have that and then they would of course argue about whose stick is what and somebody picked up the wrong stick like an hour later but uh but it's so funny to like let them just enjoy that experience and and see the look of discovery and creativity and uh, imagination just all moving through them constantly definitely uh, i think it's very enriching for for the teachers too you know like whenever i'm running the poetry retreats you know we have to have like a sort of a stick amnesty when we get back to the hostel <laughs> you know like as we leave there's this like bundle which looks like some kind of bonfire ready to go um but you know for the teachers who are seeing the children in the classroom primarily it's it's refreshing for them to see the children in this new light as well and yeah so it's a reminder of the childness of them as well when when they are just like a smaller human sitting at a desk 
you know, they could be a, they're, they're acting and seeming like a 40 year old, it could be anybody. But when as soon as they're, you know, out there in a place where the nature inspires them, it's a different kind of child that comes out, you know, for some of them, the kids who are the ones who will be like bouncing off the walls in the classroom, you might expect they'd be the ones to bolt as soon as they get out. But very often I find they're the ones who were like, okay, like now that I'm where I want to be, they'll be the ones like walking and talking at my side, like the sort of junior philosophers, like, you know, right. why do dreams, why do dreams exist? Exactly. Ask you the deep questions that you're just like, um, I wasn't really prepared for this type of yeah. questioning, but yeah, yeah, that's that's so interesting what you're saying. You know, I almost wished. I mean, I, I wonder, do you ever think about doing uh, like the Iliad type of program for adults or or for teachers, like to have them come out and have some experience for you know seven days or something like that? That sounds like it would be a pretty fun. A yeah, fun, it's one thing for and renewing for teachers and adults too. Yeah, it's it's been mentioned and you know the idea has been floated. Like this is the most remarkable thing I've found over like the last few years because you know with working for myself I started doing this full time like this kind of work in September 2019 which turned out to be a very bad time to go freelance. So as soon as <laughs> it really was yeah so as I soon know. as lockdown hit everything changed. Yeah. Uh, you know since then you know, I, I did some work in schools, like in the UK, children who were especially vulnerable were still in school and there were a limited number of people who were allowed to be the only people leaving their houses to go and educate, which was obviously strange in itself, Going, you know, being the only ones walking through inner city London, it was right. like zombie film territory. Exactly. Um, so as well as wow. doing that stuff, I started teaching online as well. And, you know, through things like out school, like sort of online homeschoolers, mostly yep. made and, you know, for me, I got to teach a huge age range as well. So some families would be like, you know, in a way that would never happen in, in a mainstream school, they might say, I like, I like the course that you do for nine to 13 year olds. I've got a five year old and I think they'd really like it. And my instinct is to be like, no, they are five. And then the experience of teaching online has made me recognize the the capabilities of a five-year-old and the capabilities of a 15-year-old can sometimes be the same in a, in a, in a good way as well. And yeah. I've often had, you know, my mind boggles at some of the online lessons I've taught when I'm looking at the faces on the screen and I'm looking at like, you know, my, my oldest student, like scratching their mustache whilst there's like a five-year-old whose feet are so small, they can't touch the ground. Oh but, they're, but they're all there together talking about, you know, like the myth of Sisyphus or something. Right. So the reason I mention this is that increasingly I see that with the more you open up your pedagogy, whether it's through like forest education or things like the Iliad, the way that it's framed, the way that I would teach it to a group of five-year-olds is no different to how I would teach it to 15-year-olds. And you mentioned adults. I think adults, yeah. I'd probably do it exactly the same way. You know, it's it's whimsical, it's a little bit uncanny, leans on like humor and the surreal. I've got like a I don't know where they are. I've got like an armor of an armory of like rubber masks to play yeah. the, you know, the different forest creatures and wigs to be Aphrodite. That's fun whether you're a five year old or a ninety five year old. So Right. Sounds like Comic Con or something like that, like role playing. You know, that all of what you're saying in there is really true, especially about the part about the stories being like really timeless, because 
I've found that that is 100% true, that no matter what story you tell, everybody gets to learn or hear that it's impacted them in whatever way it lands, no matter what age you are. So, you know, the, the, the power in it isn't, you know, skewing it to adults or skewing it to teenagers or to, or to younger children. It's really about the power of just the, the images and the conflict or whatever it is in that experience. And then letting them kind of, you know, get what they get. Right. So, Definitely. yeah. Like allowing them to have their own interpretation of what the purpose of the task is. Yes. Is, you know, like one of the most meaningful things that we do on them and you know i'm sure again with you having a background in wilderness education um you'll be familiar you know the the power of fire to change yeah. the mind and the mood so you know always our final activity whether we were doing it in the autumn time or the summer we always end um you know in a circle around a fire um in the autumn we do it like a you know a little fire in the hostel you know sitting around the fireplace and for the children, we, we do an activity which for some of them is very nice, superficial, easy. For some of them, it's the most meaningful part of the whole visit. So right. having had this four days of pause from whatever it is that's going on in their lives, some of them are having perfectly good, happy lives. But a lot of the children who the schools want this opportunity for, they're given to us expressly because they are going through awful times, you know, maybe right. homelessness or, you know, maybe recent bereavements, maybe they've had, you know, a history of all the sorts of horrible traumas that may happen to a child. For those children, that final activity that we do, we we're all sitting around the fire. It's very quiet, very thoughtful, you know, after the euphoria and the, the highs of the day, we kind of bring it back down low. And all of them has a, a little piece of paper. And all that we say to them is, Sometimes writing is there to show other people, you know, like we make anthologies for the children. So I've got one here. So when the kids get back from their retreat, we have, um, you know, we publish something right. that they want published. And we Beautiful. talk about being this like public side of writing, but also it can be private. And the most private thing that you could write is something that you write down and then even you can never see it again. So we give them a piece of paper and we say, all that we want you to do is on this piece of paper, write down something that you are ready to leave behind. You know, I don't know for sure. I don't know anything that they've ever written because we do honor this as well. As much as right. I'm tempted to secretly <laughs> unfurl them, throw like the fake ones in the fire and read them. Obviously we would never do that. Um, but what we notice is we always leave that as a very open activity. And we say, once we've thrown your thing into the fire, you can stay and watch it burn for as long as you would like to. Once you were, you know, once you've had enough, once you've seen enough, it's bedtime, you can go to bed. And I would say there'll be a few children who it seemingly nothing, it's, they've not really, really connected to it, but they've enjoyed looking at flames and that's fair enough too. The majority of them will have written something that was meaningful to them. They'll throw it in and they'll be like, okay, I'm ready for bed. Um, but on a couple of occasions, we've had it where Adissa and I, you know, we've, we've really framed it as this is a space for you to be very honest with yourself. So we need to honor the fact that we said we, you can stay as long as you would like to. Right. And, you know, on one year we sat with one child and it was a child who we knew had been going through a lot of stuff. And we sat with him, you know, for, it must've been close to an hour, um, just watching it just in silence. And it didn't feel like an uncomfortable silence. It didn't feel like we needed to pressure the child or the child felt they had to leave, but clearly 
that child felt lifted. And the next morning they wrote down a poem about a firebird. For me, I, you couldn't help but interpret that some, you know, something had lifted from them through that activity. Right. Um, and yeah, it's, it's cathartic. Yeah. And, you know, you can see that that kind of activity would work for children that age, but also it's, it's important that we recognize, I guess, with children that they also have a narrative to them, to their lives. As adults, we find it easier to say, you know, these were my early experiences that led me to be where I am. And this is my aspirations for the future. Right. Children, they, they have the same thing. They've just compressed it. You know, for them, their future is being 12 and they're in like the heart of like the maturity of being 10. And they're so embarrassed by what they were like when they were eight. So they've they like the opportunity to kind of put a narrative on their own experiences too, and finding those activities, um, you know, that harness nature, the nature becomes a way through which they can process those things. And I think it's really healthy. Yeah. I think it's a thing to do. Yeah. It seems like that's really all of, all of our heritage is staring into fires most of our lives every night and, being in the woods with other children or other our friends and just having that as our backdrop. And it's only really been what in the last 10,000 years, maybe that we've had civilization somehow. Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, you know, prior to that, that's all, that's the, our main experience. And now just going back and having time in the woods, you know, in forests, staring at fires. And then, and not only that, but also being in the company of, uh, you know, adults who are compassionate and aware, you're conscious of what you're trying to achieve. So you, you're conscious of the fact that you're, you're laying the groundwork or building the recipe for a specific kind of cookie for those children yes, you know, yeah, that, yeah. that will say, Hey, I really hope this recipe turns out. And, and then it's really magical. And sometimes you don't know with, with children, you never know. Like, I mean, I've had children come to a program and they were the first ones to get in the car with their parents and take off afterwards. And then they're the, and you thought, man, I don't know if that kid liked anything we did. They were just stoned. They never gave me anything. Mm. And then the next year, they're the first ones to sign up. And I'm like, really? And then they come back and they're like, oh my gosh, I had so much fun last time. And you're like, I couldn't tell. I didn't even know if you had teeth because you never smiled. <laughs> so, but yeah, when you're dealing with that, it's it's uh it's so rewarding too to just see like, hey, this is how education is supposed to be, right? So, in a way. Yeah, and, you know that's one of the things that I I'm very pleased with with all of this work as well is that we are, you know, in the, in this situation we're working with children in mainstream schools, we're working with teachers within that system, um, and in a in a small and subtle way, I do believe that it it changes the teachers, and through doing so, when the teachers go back, it can change their practice. You know, I know yeah. some teacher a little bit like you're mentioning with the children. I have the same thing with some of the teachers, you know, I think after four days, some of them are like, just please get me to my bed. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Delete the WhatsApp group, never speak to me again. Um, but well, then sometimes it will be the same teacher who comes back. Like there's a really great teacher who I think he's been on the retreats almost as many times as we've run them. Like the, the school always sends the same teacher, a Canadian right. guy um, called Rob. And, you know, he, adds so much you 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 realize you get something different from the teachers on the kind of project too because the teachers enable them they allow themselves to be a, a more profound version of themselves as well i think they can they can drop the teacherliness in order to teach perhaps yes 
Yeah, there's a lot of things that I can say. I mean, I never like to be critical of, say, public education in general, just because there's so many teachers in it. There's so many people working really hard and they're doing the best they can and everything else. So a lot of times when we talk about how magical and wonderful this is, it sort of seems like it's juxtaposed to, like you said, the structure versus the chaos or the creativity. And, and, and it's just so difficult to figure out, well, how do you, how do you, how do we combine these things and, you know, and not feel, I, I mean, I'm sure teachers, maybe when they go back, feel a little bit of sadness that they're like, okay, now I'm back in the classroom. And if our kids are too loud, I'm going to be judged. And if our, if we, if they, two of them fail, whatever the subject is, then I'm judged, you know, like there's that whole fear of, is this going to fall back on me and, and all that. And it, yeah, it's, it's, a it's really challenging, but the best, the, to me, the most important thing you're doing is you're actually just saying, you know, what doesn't matter. We're doing this anyway, because this has to be, this is one way that, that schools can get how valuable this is. And they get to see how the ch children are when they go back. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think at its essence, like the, the way of teaching in the forest, there's so much of it which is transferable back into the classroom. You know, without the trees, I think the core parts of it are maybe like active, like active listening, mm -hmm. like really genuinely listening to what children say, um, not because right. we're anticipating a particular response, but because we've been asking open questions and we're just talking. Mm -hmm. I think that's really vital part of it and I, I feel like I'm a much better teacher when I'm doing things back in school by bringing some of that you know that with me as well and you know for me as well the the informality of it and I know this then becomes you know informality is like deemed to be the opposite of professionalism within public education at times you know formal is a sign of goodness and I don't believe that that needs to be the case right. um you know I've I found even small subtle changes like when I'm because Adissa the poet that I work with goes by his first name as a poet in education you know I I came from the background of having been a primary school teacher and a school leader as well I was in like school administration for two years so I was very much Mr Walker right <laughs> yeah I, was, I wonder like what difference it makes to the children if they are calling me Mr Walker like, I don't do I need do I need that do I right. need that kind of respect I don't need that um, I can get respect and I can have a different kind of respect. And it was remarkable that just certain little changes of proudly informalizing practice led to a very different kind of learning culture. And, you know, from my own perspective, I would say the richness of it is enhanced through doing that as well. Right. Um, you, you spend a lot less time enforcing particular ways of learning that aren't actually learning. It's, it's just routines of nothingness <laughs> right right you, you find you're spending so much of your time enforcing things needlessly whereas when you peel it back and look at what matters it's just conversation mutual respect and you know just value in the fact that children actually have got really valuable things to say yes yeah i've always been amazed at, at listening really listening to students and what you said about open communication is really valuable. It's been, that was an interesting thing that I learned uh, not too long ago, really. I, I saw this where a lot of my staff, I had a few different members of my staff and they would always ask these kinds of, they would make either closed ended statements like, you know, this is how this is. And I would say, you know, when you say that, 
there's nothing anyone can add unless they're going to argue with you. And so it's really a challenge in a way when you make that. I said, but you could say it in a different way where it's open, where it invites something. And you could say, hey, I've been thinking about it like this, but you know, I'm wondering, there's probably a lot of ways to see it. What do you, how do you feel? Like just, just creating that space so that they have a chance to um, join you in that process in whatever way. Or just asking them a question and leaving leaving our side of it out is not a bad thing either. No, not at all. You can never really predict what will come out. You know, for, for me, I, when I reminisce on these trips, mm-hmm. like whilst I'm there, what fascinates me is the nature, I think, and like just seeing the children interacting with it. But when it becomes reminiscence, it's almost always conversation that I remember. Right. Um, you know, it's like the the odd little side comments that a child might say as they're walking away and it somehow captures the essence of that moment yeah teachers teachers can um you know and it's again it isn't to bash on teachers because they are burdened with you know a lot of busyness and it's harder to be kind of open to all of the things that children might want to offer when you've got so much else but i i do find that that's you know one of the privileges of being an educator is when you can attune to what children are saying mm-hmm. sadly for so many of them it, it doesn't happen at all you know if they're from a big family even if it's a very big loving family they don't often get heard or they don't get the time to really say what they want to say yeah and that's one of the beauties of these kind of outdoor walking based visits is that all we do is we walk and talk like in its bare bones that's all we do and it's remarkable how much can come from it that's a hundred percent true. I, I think what you're just, what you just said. And, and I think that, you know, when, one of the powers that I found with like our, some, when we ran our wilderness programs was that I said to a lot of the staff, it's some, some of them were younger and they were like, you know, I don't really know a lot about animal tracking. I don't, I'm not an expert in wilderness skills. They would say, I, I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I could do. You know, I don't, I feel like I'm the fifth wheel or something. And I would just kind of talk to them and say, you know, I say, you're, you're 20 years old or 22. And I said, you're for, to these children, you're, you're like the older brother or sister or cousin or someone. And I said, the average 22 year old doesn't want to hang out with a 10 year old in mm-hmm. any way. They don't want to listen. They don't want, they have their own agenda, whatever's going on, whatever their problems are, or whatever they're dealing with. And I said, so for you, just to give them your attention and your kindness and your curiosity and, you know, asking them questions about their family or whatever. I said that you don't understand how much that's filling them up inside with having them feel good about who they are, because they are literally invisible to a lot of anybody in that age range. And then they're invisible to a lot of adults too, where, you know, so it's, uh, I said, you just don't, you don't, you don't have to do anything. You can go down and play tetherball or just go for a walk and they'll hold your hand or you can just be gathering something. And, and that, that connection that they have, that's going to fill them. I said, you have no idea how important it mm. is. And then they would say, you know what? That's right. I was at a program, you know, so they, they get it. And, uh, and I think that that's, that's really special to, to develop that, you, you know, you've done something really incredible here. I, I really hope this keeps growing, you know, because it sounds like we need this in every school, you know, in every every region. Well, you know, this for the way that I see it all going, this is why it's so great that things like your podcast exist. You know, it's the really nice thing with working in this kind of creative space is that everybody, just like we're talking about the way that children respond differently to forests, 
you know, the way that I'm piecing this together is based on my own relationship with how I feel, I guess, in the forests. And then, then the experiences of having taken children one year there changes it for the next year. So the fact that everyone is taking their own interesting creative routes into using forest space in so many dynamic ways, it's great to hear all of these other episodes and to see there's just so much breadth and potential for it. And right. it's beyond it being trees. I mean, trees are fascinating enough as they are, but the amount of things that they can enable and the amount mm-hmm. of different social space they can open up is limitless. So it's, it's good work. Nice work. It, it, it really is. And I, and I love the, I mean, anytime there's any kinds of uh, shows about that, that feature uh, the UK and, and, you know, different areas of Europe, whatever, I just always remember picturing these like huge beech trees and uh, various large trees in those forests. And I just think mm. of that. that's what I'm picturing every time you're mentioning a glade or, you know, yes. that forest. And I just, I, it just makes me super happy. I, I was always really big on the whole, on the King Arthur uh, kind of Avalon uh, storylines as well. So I, I have a lot of imagination about all that. Um, so yeah, th- this has been really great. I I, um, I really appreciate your time. And I can you tell us a little bit about where they can, people can find you? I, I know we'll have all the links and everything in our show notes, but in case someone's listening and they want to just jump in. Of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I have a website for the work that I do in education. So that's www.otherwiseeducation.com. And you can follow me on Instagram and now threads as well, right. which is um, at otherwise edu. So that's where I do a lot of my work in schools. Um, and yeah, you know, for anybody who is listening, who is looking to do similar sorts of things as well, I'm always happy to talk about it. I I find so much of the richness around this kind of work is the conversations that people have. And, you know, when everyone throws their ideas together, it's only beneficial for everybody. Yeah. 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 And and the work that you and Adissa have done, uh, I mean, this is real, this is an act of power. In my opinion, you, you have taken a leap to say, we are going to take something that is an idea. We're doing it. And you're, you took the leap and you're making it happen. And it's just, I, I just really respect that. I, I know how hard it is to do at times and how many times you will, well, this might be too, this might not work or whatever. And then you have the pandemic and you're like, okay, now we got to have the lockdowns and figure out online versions. I could talk to you for a long time, just about how your online experiences have been. Uh, yes. but maybe that's another time, another conversation. I hope you have a great summer uh, and, you know, a great rest of your year, your year. I'm looking forward to seeing how it keeps evolving. So, oh, you thanks too. so Good much. Good luck with the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes my forest educator nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.